So a growth mindset is being open to learning, you know, being a lifelong learner and being open. And it's a great concept. It's easy to do over a glass of wine, but it becomes incredibly hard to do if you haven't formally trained your mind to be open when there's pressure or stress or, you know, a a sense of urgency in the environment. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Mincione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Mincione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. I am so excited to welcome back this extraordinary guest to Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Dr. Michael Gervais is a world-renowned high-performance coach by training and trade. He works with leaders from athletics, the arts, and business, including Olympic athletes, acclaimed musical artists, and leaders like Satya Nadella. Last year, Michael and I had a wide-ranging conversation that's been a fan favorite. For this episode, we continue the discussion on high performance, his experience at the Tokyo Olympics this past year, and how high performance manifests itself in the world of technology partnering. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed welcoming back Mike Gervais. Before we dive into the interview, I'm happy to announce that PartnerTap has become a founding sponsor of Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I've been friends with the founders of PartnerTap for many years, and PartnerTap is the only partner ecosystem platform designed for the enterprise. Their technology makes it easy to align channel teams with automated account mapping, letting you control what data you share while building a partner revenue engine. I'm so excited to have them on board. Be on the lookout for events, content, and more. And I'm so excited to continue working together in our exciting year ahead. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Vince, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. <laughs> I am so excited to welcome you back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering, right? You and I got to work together when I was at Microsoft. I was so honored and humbled that you came to our podcast last year. So welcome back. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I love our conversation. <laughs> so I'm stoked to be here and let's see where we go. I love it. I love it. And, you know, I've been listening to some of your recent podcasts, Jim Nance and Chris Capicella. I mean, two heroes in my mind, right? I got to work with Chris and Jim, my gosh, listening to the masters with Jim Nance. It's just like, that's what I, I, I look forward to. It's my favorite weekend of the year, in fact. So, oh my gosh. So you and I are both nerds, right? So Chris Capazella, for folks who don't know, is the CMO at Microsoft. And I imagine not many people, your world would definitely know who Chris is, yeah. but not many people would, but the people inside of enterprise companies that are paying attention to modern leadership. Yeah. They know Chris. They know and Chris. It, what an absolute treat. And then Jim Nance, just a legend. I mean, just a legend. You know, you know his voice. <laughs> Even if you don't know the name, you know his voice if you've watched any of the major events, golf and football and basketball, you know, in the last 20 years. Yeah. Like, 
Yeah. So that was fun too. I was having that. I was having that same discussion with my personal trainer this morning. Like you don't know Jim Nance, but you know, Jim Nance, like everybody knows Jim Nance. I don't know if you had a chance to hear him say, hello, friends, you know, on the intro, like, and so that's his signature. I was like, you know, I was like a little nerd kid saying, you know, can you say it for me, Jim? (laughs) And he kicked off your 300th episode. So I want to start there, right? So first of all, congratulations, Finding Mastery, 300 episodes. Thank you. And you're a high performance coach by training and trade, as you describe yourself. And I said, we had the opportunity to work together. I was very fortunate. You had just come into Microsoft to do some work in the U.S. leadership team. And I was on one of those leadership teams. And that's how we first met. But for the one or two listeners in our audience who don't know who you are, could you share a little bit about you and your work? Yeah, that's fun. Of course. Yes. (laughs) So by trade and training, I am a performance psychologist. I spent most of my time in um, exacting environments in sport, adventure sport, meaning things where activities and and events where people that make mistakes, they, you know, there's high cost backcountry type of events where the stakes are incredibly high. Spent the last 10 years with the Seattle Seahawks in, you know, traditional stick and ball sport, you know, football. And, and then about seven years ago, coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, he and I were like lockstep on principles to help people become their very best. So there's principles and then there's practices. And we're talking about psychology now is about seven, eight years ago. He says, Mike, do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in, you know, what we're doing together? And so we put it on the back of a napkin. This is the beginnings of a business. We put it on the back of a napkin. <laughs> we tested it out with a trusting soul at Microsoft, a mutual friend of ours, Vince. And, yep. and it worked, you know, and there was like good momentum behind it. And then there was some leadership interest in it. And before you know it, to date, we've trained over 50,000 people at Microsoft alone, putting in about 10 to 12 hours a person of work. So wow. like, wow, it, it's been, it's been a, this amazing arc and I couldn't be more excited about the interest in psychology right now. Yeah. You know, I couldn't be more excited about the real investment that leaders are making in the psychology of humans. So I recall we were in Virginia, we were in an offsite, a beautiful resort. And that was the week before you met with Satya's leadership. You were talking about it. Like you're saying, Hey, I'm going to go meet with Satya. And like, what's that going to be like? You know, you're having that conversation with us in the room. And I was like, and then, you know, fast forward and page five of hit refresh. Right. And we talked about this on the last episode, the time you spent with that leadership team. I, by the way, I speak about my principles of successful partnering. I start off with mindset and I talk about the three things that Satya did. One of which, by the way, is that he brought you into the room. And we'll talk a little bit more about mindset as we go forward, but just the performance of Microsoft. I mean, it is really striking to see. And people say, well, this, this mindset thing is like woo-woo. No, it's not woo-woo. Like, look look at the trajectory of Microsoft. Look at the valuation of the company. Like, okay, you could put a financial number at, at mindset here. Yeah, I think that, one, he's an extraordinary leader. His team is extraordinary. They're intelligent. They are aware they're hardworking. They've got all the kind of core capabilities. And then when he tripled down, you know, on the value of psychological skills, evidenced by the framing of his culture was to have a growth mindset to, and to do that, I think I might've shared this phrase with you, Vince, to have a growth mindset. So a growth mindset is being open to learning, you know, being a lifelong learner and being open. And it's a great concept. It's easy to do over a glass of wine, 
glass, you know, a cup of tea (laughs) with friends. It's, you know, it's quite simple, but it becomes incredibly hard to do if you haven't formally trained your mind to be open when there's pressure or stress or, you know, a a sense of urgency in the environment. And so uh, that's where we entered the picture and it, you know, super fortunate. As you say, harsh environments. I like that term, harsh environments. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to postpone this a couple of times because uh, you've been traveling like quite a bit, but it all started in Tokyo, right? This summer we were going to record and we had to postpone because of Tokyo. You know, this was such an, uh, you know, it was an interesting Olympics and I wanted to get your perspective on it, even though it's been a few months now, right? There's been, you know, first the restrictions, right? About people attending the events. And then Simone Biles and sort of, let's say, both a a striking announcement and maybe some controversy around that announcement. So what was it like being up close and personal there? Well, let's first frame the games. The Olympic Games are truly like no other event in this respect is that you have world's best from every corner of the world competing representing their country and in just about every sport that you can imagine. So it really is a unique collection of mental, physical specimens of humans that have dedicated their life efforts towards mastery. And there's a condensed energy around it because there's, it's time limited. Some people have seconds, some people have minutes or hours to compete, and it is incredible. And any time that you have the opportunity to represent or play a part in representing your country, it is quite remarkable. That, that is, it's, it is hard to describe what it's like to wear the flag, to be in an arena where other people are you know, wearing their flags, and it's a competitive environment between nations. And you know, individuals are representing the brightest, if you will, from a physical prowess standpoint of the country. And so it, there's this beautiful spirit that's, that is threaded through it. And that is electric and it's wonderful. So what happened in these games because of COVID and the restrictions is that there's no fans. So it was different. It was fundamentally different. And I'm not sure it was the right decision or, or, or not. Like there's, we can argue on both sides of why that was a good call or not a good call. So I don't, I don't think that that's a good use of our time here, but I do think that something very special happened in surfing. So I was with the USA surfing team before we go to Simone Biles is that we ended up, it was the first time it was ever in the games. It was the sport I grew up surfing. It was the reason I got into performance and sports psychology is because I could not administer the talent that was dormant in me. Like I could do it in practice, but couldn't do it in competition. And the only reason that is true is because I didn't have the psychological skills required to get free during a harsh or competitive or intense environment. And so it is a beautiful, like 35 year full circle come around. And it was meaningful on many levels for me. So we were with surfing and my personal experience is that it was the best games that I've been at. I've worked across three Olympic games it was a forcing function to have this really tight bubble. Mm. So we had relationships that were deeper and more meaningful than any other games that I've had. Not to say that those relationships weren't deep and meaningful, but this was even more so because we couldn't leave. Yeah. 
you know, we got to know each other's inappropriate jokes and bad jokes and good jokes. And like the whole thing was like this forcing function to get to the truth. And the distraction. At the same of, time, yeah. Yeah. When people are performing in the most stressful environment that, yep. that you can imagine. So with Simone Biles, yeah, she put psychology on the front page. Yeah. Wonderfully so. I think that you and I have felt this in the enterprise world and the business world for years. We have traded our psychological and emotional wellness for the bottom line required by the employer. Yes. And we've sacrificed our family. We've sacrificed our health. We've sacrificed our relationships with our kids. We've sacrificed so much in the pursuit of a steady job so that we could provide for them, but at the cost of the relationship of them and with them. So there is a massive thing that's taken place in sport over the last, call it 10 to 15 years. There's been a radical shift. Simone Biles put that shift from harden up, stop being a wimp, to you're a full human, let's support the completeness of a human. What does that mean? Nutrition, physical, rehab, great medicine, psychological services, technology. It's a full wrap of the human as opposed to this message like focus more, harden up, be stronger, don't be a wimp. That's changing and has changed in sport over the last 15 years. And it's now trickling through to business in the right way. And so I think it's a really exciting time for humanness. And I am nervous. You know, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm nervous about things, but it's an incredible time if you're a leader to move from the extraction model to the unlocking model. And that is what great leaders will be measured by in the future. That's a really great point. And we've already discussed Simone Biles on our podcast. We had a corporate vice president from Microsoft, Mary Williamson, on just recently. Oh, you did? Yes. Did you get to work awesome. with Mary? I, I, yeah. I'm going to check out that episode. How yeah. Fun. Really great. And, you know, we talk about empathy. So, so much has changed. We've talked about this before, but, you know, since in this 20 plus months now that we're at, I think that the humanness has come through really, ironically, since we've been digital, we've become in many respects more human. And I I caught this. I mean, I loved your Chris Capicella episode because there was some tension in the room. His dog was barking. And this is common day now in these meetings. Like I, you're doing a big presentation or a workshop and there's hundreds of people in the room and the kids come in the room and the dog is barking, right? And now we've learned to be more human. Maybe Simone's, you know, coming forward and, and what she did struck a chord. And may, maybe, do you think it's kind of launched something in terms of the way business thinks about it? Yeah, well, I don't know if she would be the reason for it, there was a swell that was building. Mm. And that swell is a fatigue of the sacrifice of the wholeness of the person. So people are tired of being tired and tired of being marginalized and tired of not being able to have a full self-experience. And there's a deep fatigue that when When people are tired for too long, it comes with an anger and agitation and irritability. And so there's a readiness for this. And so, yeah, I mean, just like if the, if the middle class shrinks, we have problems, right? And so there's, there's revolutions that are built on that concept. And so this is the beginnings of not, I'm not going to map middle class to mental health, but I'm saying that there's enough of the middle that says, forget about it. 
Yeah. And so the genie's out of the bottle, like the pandemic clearly let the genie out of the bottle where people got a taste of autonomy. Yes. They got to decide when and where they're going to set up their office, how they're going to work. You know, like the genie's out of the bottle. So people feel more empowered than they've ever felt. They have a better sense of autonomy. They are leaving at, in droves from companies that didn't offer the right wholeness to the human experience. And business will be changed from this point forward. Was it was it Simone? It was partly. Was it the pandemic? Partly. Was it the unsettled sacrifices that people were making for Wall Street and and the boss? Is boss's boss? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of variables that have come together in a really important way. And the sophistication of the science of psychology it is up for the challenge now, yeah. where we weren't up for the challenge 15 years ago. Okay, so Vince, like we know gravity exists, right? <laughs> we can't see it, yeah. but we know it exists. Same is true for the mind. We can't see the mind, but we know it exists because we can see the impact of gravity. We can see the impact of the mind. When a mind is strong and healthy, dynamic and flexible and agile, we see that. And when the mind is rigid and stressed and feels like it's going to break and it's an intolerance to the world, we see that too. So it's the downstream effect of the upstream psychological skills and psychological framework that we've been paying attention to. Now, the world is going, "Uh uh-uh, I'm tired of looking downstream. I'm tired of feeling like I'm being yanked out of the river because I'm almost drowning. Like, I got to go upstream. And let, let me fix the upstream experience, and which is like investing in the quality of one's mind. I say all that to say it is not woo-woo. <laughs> it is not magical. There's a good science that sits in underneath meaning and fulfillment and high performance and well-being. There's a good science here. What is your coaching? I mean, do your high performance coach to both athletes and musicians and to the business world? What is the type of coaching you're providing to leaders today around this? So it's using the best principles of the science of psychology and then using all of the reference points that I uniquely have experienced in life in some of the most high pressured, fast paced, exact high performing environments whether that's Formula One, whether that's the NFL, whether that's the Olympics, adventure and action sport, where, you know, one of the projects I worked on, Felix Baumgartner, you might remember the Red Bull Stratos program where he jumped, first person to jump from 130,000 feet, you know, is a remarkable reference point of human potential. So using those reference points of the psychology that works in those exacting high pressured environments, and then the good stuff that stands up in, in the laboratory of the psychology of science or the science of psychology. So putting those two together and then helping hopefully at scale individuals that are in a leadership position, scale those principles across their teams. And so it starts with them on a set of practices. And I can talk about in more detail if you'd like what those are. And then at scale, how to roll that through an organization so that we create a rising tide of wellness and high performance. Yep. And so, Vince, that's the unique intersection that I'm fascinated by is the psychology of high performance and the psychology of wellness. That unique intersection is where I spend most of my time um, thinking and sharing. 
Well, for our listeners who didn't listen to, by the way, we had split it up as a two-episode, 82 and 83 of Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Maybe just from the framework, because I want to dive in here on a couple, a little bit deeper on the psychology. Maybe just frame out what that psychology looks like for our listeners who, again, have not listened before. Okay, great. Let's, again, stay upstream here for a minute. Is that here's a model that I think would be really effective for most people to pay attention to. There's five variables that I want to talk about. And these are large buckets, and we can double click under each one of these to to go deeper and make it more practical. But there is a practice of self-discovery to know yourself. And I can't imagine having a like a high performing mind when you don't know how your thoughts, emotions work together, how your thoughts, emotions and your environment, you know, the triggering and and the interaction there work together. Like, so there's a self-discovery process, which is really about what are my core values? What are, and you might know them right now, but until you write them down and practice them, they don't really become real. It's the practicing where they become real. What's my purpose? You know, what's the future look like for me? You know, and, 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 and. And so there's a self-discovery set of skills to develop. There are specific, very concrete mental skills. So that's the second factor, self-discovery, mental skills, developing a psychological framework. That's a third. Having a a robust set of recovery practices. That's the fourth. And the fifth is having a mindfulness practice which is the golden thread that runs through everything. I and love so, that. you know, we can go anywhere you would like to go here, but that those are the five big rocks to get in the container when you're wanting to invest in a agile, strong, and nimble psychological framework. What strikes me is so much of what you discuss from a human element applies to business from an organizational element, right? When you were talking about values and purpose, I was thinking about a company's values and its mission and its vision for the organization. And I I do some of the same exercise with organizations because they want to get to point B, but we haven't even talked about like what's like what road are we on and why are we why are we trying to get to point B? Like what is our and you know, the work I do with organizations around partnering, like locking arms with another organization, as you you've referred to it too, right? There's a set of principles there as well that very closely align to this. I think people or organizations miss this. Don't you believe that? Yeah, I think that purpose from a research standpoint holds up. Yeah. And also from a very, from a very practical standpoint, like when you know your purpose as a, let's say a parent, for those of you who might be parents or those in your community that might be parents and you know, a, your child's life depends on you for safety. And let's say your toddler, you know, is just beginning to kind of walk and for whatever reason you lose track and you look up and your kid is walking into the street and there's a car coming, right? You'll do whatever it takes. Absolutely. You would do in that moment, whatever it takes to save your child because your purpose is clear that you are a provider for, for this this human that doesn't have a whole lot of protection mechanisms. And it just holds up as adults too. When you know what matters to you, you'll do what it takes, you know, for a loved one. Same is true for business is that when your purpose is incredibly clear, not only will you do the hard work longer, which is required to do things that are extraordinary, 
but you will also be very clear about how to recover well so you can do the long, hard things properly mm. because it matters. If it doesn't matter enough, we don't do the long, hard work. And sometimes that long, hard work is simply recovering intelligently. Recovery used to be something we would ignore. And now it's uh, almost like a badge of honor. It's like, yeah, I'm a grinder. I only slept five hours last night. Like, hey, let's go rip some beers and like, you know, let's get after. It's like, hey, that's that's just like, it's like (laughs) labeling. Like, hey, listen, I was cool in 1980. Exactly. You know, so and when purpose is clear, all of the other stuff starts to fall in line. And so here's the science of purpose just really quickly. Vince, is that nobody can give you purpose. So there's three components to it. One is it has to matter to you. It has to have personal meaning. The second is that it needs to be bigger than you. So it's not something you can solve alone. It's something far bigger than you. And so that's an important component to purpose. And the third, according to research, is that there's a future orientation to it, meaning that it, it can't necessarily be solved today, that there's a future aspect to it. And so you keep working. So those are the three aspects of purpose, personal meaning, bigger than you, and it's still, there's work to do for it. So, so I'm going to just yeah. dive in one second here because on partnerships, I believe it's the same, right? We There's a personal win, whether it's my organizational win or my personal win in my career. There's the we win, right? It's bigger than us. We need a partner to go do it. And then it's not going to happen today. And it's going to require maybe a lot of work, hard work. Some stress will enter the room, as you like to refer to it. And we need to be aligned here, right? God, I love that. I love how easy you crosswalked those three concepts to a partnership. That, yeah, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that. Well, business is a partnership, right? Organization, well, life is a partnership with other people, right? A spouse, uh, friends. So I love what you had to say here also, because I'm thinking about the locking arms component. And I'm going to come back here. I want to come back to the Satya discussion, because I recall from our last engagement and conversation that you entered the room and Satya was all about the purpose and mission for the organization. It was big. It was bold. Every individual and every organization on earth to achieve more, right? That's huge. It's amazing. And you didn't have everybody on board at that point, right? You had a lot of alpha competitors. You had organizations that were at that point, and I was there, I was in Microsoft at the time, were competing with one another for resources, for recognition, for, yeah, I mean, just for a lot of reasons. And so tell us about the sustainment piece of that. Like how, how do you sustain that? Okay, it's okay to get everybody in the room, do the Kumbaya session. But then what happens after that? Like, how do you sustain that in any organization? Yeah, cool. So I don't think it was Kumbaya, to be clear. No, it was not just, at all. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was, it, but, but I, I, I totally appreciate the sentiment, which is, you know, people kind of pushing their chair back just a little bit, yeah. crossing their arms, you know, letting their legs kind of straighten out in front of them, you know, that kind of side tilted head, like, what are we doing? I got numbers to hit. Yeah. Okay. How much time do we have? Cause I got emails and numbers to hit. Okay. Looking at the watches, right? Doing the watch. Yeah. Right. There's a funny story just before we get into the work with Satya is that there was a senior leader that I worked with where he had a tell. And when he was done, it was signaled by, he would take off his watch and put it on on the desk, the table that we're at. So whenever the senior leader would take off his watch and put it in front of him, 
everybody in the room knew this conversation needs to wrap up now. <laughs> and so, you know, that type of clarity is not often had. You yeah. know, sometimes yeah. there's a lot of quiet skepticism that we need to work through as well. So, you know, like you said, I will make sure that I honor all the right privileges that Sati and his leadership team have given me. And but what he did share in pages, you know, four, five, six, seven, something like that in his book, right up front, was the value of developing and sharing personal philosophies. Mm. And so just like he says in the book, he got to that part of our day and he said, okay, we've got incredible work to do. The mission of our organization is really big. And so we need to know each other. So he stopped us there and said, Mike, it doesn't matter how much time this takes right now. I want us to know each other, to do this work and to know ourselves better. So each person took time, 20, 30 minutes, wrote down, you know, we've got a set of practices that we walk people through to help them, which you're familiar with, to help them become more familiar with getting at least close in the 30 minute working session to get close to their philosophy. And so at the end of that, each person went around and just shared. That takes courage and vulnerability. There's a better understanding of the people. Your question is, once you do some of that work, once you understand some of those key variables, how do you extend it? Well, it takes place that the reason change happens when you look at science of psychology is that there's pain involved. And I'm not talking about like, I'm not talking about physical pain right now. I'm talking about there's an unsettledness inside of a person that I don't want to live this way anymore. Mm. And so it has to reach a threshold, which is unique to each person, it has to reach a threshold where they finally go, right, there is a better way. Oh, oh my, this is it. Okay, I'm going to do the work. Yeah. So there's something that happens for the individuals in that room. They have met their pain. They felt a different way about themselves. And then from that and other trainings that we give in that full day experience, and then they pull. So the sustainability question that you have is they pull. They say, hey, can we get some of this from our team? Can mm. we do a little bit more of this with my team? You know, we, great, we're doing it with Satya's team. Can we do it with my team? And it means that they were touched in some way where they felt more whole, more potential was clarity of their potential. They felt closer to it. And they felt like there was a path here that made sense. So it wasn't woo-woo, it wasn't like overly academic, and it wasn't overly, there's actually no motivation in how I work. Like right. It's just widening the aperture of what does potential look like for you, and here's some skills that will help you get closer. And you talked about recovery, right, as part of the sustainability, right? Because we yeah. need to recover, and, that's, and I know that's around rest and hydration and exercise and mindfulness, and I might have missed something, but I believe that's some of them. What does an organizational an organization do around sustainment? How did they take that? Again, I, I keep thinking back. That was seven years ago now, or almost seven years ago. Well, here's the best practice in elite sport is that when we started to understand that sleep was a competitive advantage, like those that slept better as an individual were able to bring more intensity for longer periods of time. So there's more available resources. And then when you do that at scale, it's like a real competitive advantage, you know, come the days that you're going to test your team's metal. And we would do 
in one team I'm thinking of right now is that once the coaches and decision makers understood the science, it was a no-brainer that they said, right, let's put in practices where our last meeting will, when we break our last meeting, we will always give a 10-hour window before our first meeting. Nice. So to at least give the chance to get home, to wind down for, you know, because it's days are long in elite sport. They're long. It, it is a full 16-hour day, you know, e- easily every day. I, I don't think people quite appreciate how much intellectual and physical work the athletes put in and then how much intellectual work the coaches put in. And so we just made a commitment that we're never going to have meetings creep into it that 10-hour window so people could at least get close to seven eight, maybe eight and a half, nine hours of sleep. Athletes need a little bit more on average than the non-athletes. So so that's that's one small set of practices, but it first begins with education, then experience, then you can cascade something. So without those two first, it really doesn't cascade. You know, the topic of empathy comes up quite a bit when I talk to Microsoft leaders, right? And this has been another topic you've talked about as well. And I don't believe that a lot of tech organizations are as evolved as Microsoft is, candidly. I mean, as you look around at the top tech companies out there, and I've worked with several leaders, what do you think these other organizations can do better or differently, maybe to train empathy? And as we talked about mindfulness and some of the practices for sustainment, like how do you think that they can get better? It starts with leadership. You know, unless there's going to be like that revolt that I was talking about, like when the middle class shrinks and people are like, you know, so there could be a revolt that usually doesn't happen. We're starting to see the exodus, though, of like the beginnings of some sort of revolt where people are voting with their feet. And so talent is going to go to places where the leaders understand what modern leadership is. Mm. So I would say to and I'll just frame it up again, is that it's we're moving from, thank goodness, the extraction model. You're a body on, on a conveyor belt. And, yeah. and that's... You the know, Henry Ford model, right? The, yeah, so yeah. we're moving from the extraction model because we've realized and people are screaming it, like, I'm not just a body. Yeah. And so, so we're moving from the extraction to the unlocking. And when leaders will get in touch with their own neuroses and their own anxieties and their own humanness and they get true with like what what they're really doing with their time here and they do some of that work it is a natural step yeah and just like an elite sport i haven't met vince a coach or an athlete that doesn't say oh yeah yeah, the mental part of the game is so important and then you follow up oh great what are you doing across the organization for you know mental training we leave that up to them at night yeah. What? Yeah. That makes no sense. It makes so sense. You ask a modern leader, like, what do people want out of their work experience here? And they go, oh, they want purpose and meaning. Oh, good. What are you doing to help with that? Well, I think we have something in HR. Come on. I mean, it's nothing wrong with HR. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like, no, you, you have to be actively involved and highly engaged and care about the quality of life for the quality of production. And nothing beautiful is coming out of an overstressed organization, period. Nothing amazing is coming from that. You can do it for a little bit of time. You know, acute stress will get will create some amazing things, but chronic stress, 
is a substandard condition that leads to a substandard output, whatever the organization's mission, product, or service is. You know, I'm struck by, because I are actually feeling what you're saying very deeply here, right? And all the organizations I've worked in. And a lot of times we mask, you know, the, ba- the bad behavior. We mask the bad behavior. The street has us overperform, so we look good. Maybe we threw, a, we sprinkled enough stock options out there so people were trading their fortune for, you know, being on the assembly line, so to speak. I mean, maybe the revolt has to happen to a greater degree in some of these organizations, right? We need more leaders like Satya, like you, that are placing value in the wholeness of of a human for the potential delivery of the mission. Let me just use a a timeline in sport as a parallel path. So sport tends to be a little, elite sport tends to be a little bit ahead of other industries because it is so visible, it is so concrete, it is so competitive that there's an advancement of human development in sport that is quite obvious, you know, and you can't hide in sport. You really can't. Like individual sports, certainly even like team sports, like the camera is always on. And so 60 years ago, great coaches come leaders. Okay. Great coaches did everything and they were highly stressed, quite anxious, but tried to control and do as much as they possibly could and the right reasons and the service for the, for the athletes. Right. And then the advanced one said, God, there's this industry called sports and I'm sorry, called strength and conditioning. What if we could get our guys to be bigger, faster, stronger in the fourth quarter? So there, yeah. so that happened. Then guys were so big and gals were so big, fast, and strong. I was thinking about football. I said, guys, they're so big, fast, and strong that they're getting hurt more. Okay. Athletic training. Yeah. Then medicine, athletic medicine. Then comes in nutrition. Well, what if we can fuel them better? Then came in, let's call it 15, 20 years ago, a swelling of psychology. Okay. So- so now enterprise and, and smaller organizations are accidentally on some on purpose following that trend. And so when you say we need more empathy, it is finally getting to the psychology of relationships. But to have more empathy, we need more courage. Right. To have more courage, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to know that we are okay. However, this thing is going to play out, we're going to be okay. And I'm not talking about from a needs perspective. I'm talking about from a psychological wellness perspective, from an integrity standpoint. So self-trust is where empathy will begin. You don't come in and say, hey, let's all be vulnerable. What do you think? You start with self-trust, which is like, what are your core values? Do you trust that you can live in alignment with those? If you don't, what psychological skills do you need? Oh, I need to be a little bit more calm. Great. Well, here's a set of practices. I could actually be a bit more confident. I think I'm struggling with confidence. No problem. Here's a set of practices. So, and then over time, when you're training calm and confidence and you're doing it in challenging ways, you earn the right to say, I can trust myself. And then if my values are true to me and they matter, then I can trust that I can live in alignment with those values wherever I go. And when that takes place, what ends up happening for most people is they can drop their shoulders just a little bit get out of their own head because they feel a sense of safety and trust mm-hmm. and that they can navigate themselves in stressful environments. Then they see others. Then they can look across and go, tell me about you. That's how it begins. So good. 
So much of what you have to say here applies to partnerships, right? So the trust, you know, I interview every guest from business that I interview, not, for, you know, the business of partnering. I ask them specifically, like what makes a great partnership? And it comes down to a set of fundamentals, which I've identified principles, but trust and people say, well, why isn't trust on that list? Well, trust is embedded in every single one of those principles. Yeah, there you go. It's yeah. like the, the vein or the artery that runs through each one of them. And what you said here was really striking to me about the self-trust first. Mm -hmm. Like you have to trust yourself. You have to get well yourself first. And then you can apply it across the room, so to speak, right? Whether that's another individual or a partnership. So how do you get there? Like how do you train trust? Training the core cap capabilities that I spoke about, like calm and confidence and like breathing, self-talk. And to be better at both of those, you need, I think, a mindfulness practice yeah. embedded in there. And if, you know, mindfulness isn't your thing, definitely then another awareness building practice. And there's three of them that I've found to be potent. One is mindfulness. The second is journaling. Journaling. You know, there's a forcing function to be true mm -hmm. to yourself. Mm -hmm. And then the third is conversations with people of wisdom that will hold a mirror up and, you know, help you get to the truth. And so you become more aware out of those three practices. And there might be more, but those are the three that I found to be incredibly valuable. The fourth, which I don't think people are ready to hear, but I'm happy to share it with you, is um, putting yourself in highly physically dangerous environments. Physically so dangerous. I, physically. I came from that world. Yes. High stakes, physically dangerous environments. Call it adventure and action sports. So I don't want to introduce that callously. And that's why I only, I only talk about the three. But that fourth one will teach you a lot about yourself. Mm. But the consequences are real. Yeah. And it would be sloppy of me to suggest without some real investment in one psychology to have true command of yourself to suggest that you should put yourself in physically dangerous environments. Yeah. So I'll pull it back. <laughs> but so you, you practice those psychological skills. So you have a better command of yourself in calm environments. Mm -hmm. And then you try those skills out in more stressful environments. And then over time, trust is a quite simple formula in some respects is that it's time multiplied by behavior and the behavior is doing difficult things. So over time, you end up earning the right by doing difficult things to say, I can do difficult things and I can figure it out. Like I can trust myself. Yeah. And we could double dip under like, well, how do you do or double click underneath the trust piece, which is like, there needs to be a sense of logic. There needs to be a sense of, you know, caring about your growth. There's other elements that we could double click under, but for now, it's just doing difficult things. So you earn the right to say, I can do difficult things. And eventually you'll say, I can trust myself. Well, and I could apply that to partnerships, right? So yeah, again, it, you know, I always go back to the emotional bank account, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits. Time is a big factor, right? Time and the multiplier of doing things. And then the difficult things are when we're in the room and we're locked arms. But maybe the conversation just isn't, it's not a happy conversation. It's about a stress on the business or performance. We miss their numbers. And, and, or this, we set up, for, we signed up for this partnership and we're not getting the results we expected. Right. Sometimes it's as simple as speaking truth to power. Speaking you know, truth to and, power. Yeah. And when you say partnerships, I, I want to like, I want to ride shotgun with you because I talk, I don't talk about partnerships. I talk about relationships. Yeah. And so I think you and I could sub out those two words interchangeably and it would be very close to the same. So that's I, right. 
you know, first your relationship with yourself. So your partnership with yourself, I guess, like, do you have your back? Do you know who you are? Are you your best supporter? You know, do you, does your inner life facilitate the external life that you want to, to, you know, live? So there's the first, the partnership or the relationship with yourself, then the relationship with others, then the relationship with the planet and the relationship with machines that's coming. And so, Mm. you, you know, Vince, that in nine years, we're going to have a machine that's smarter than the smartest human. Yes. And so my purpose is quite clear. If you give me a moment to share it, Please. and then it would share up the share the purpose of the company too, is that my purpose is to help people live in the present moment more often. How? By training their mind and becoming more connected to the best practices that allow them to live in the present moment more often. So it's a front loading of psychological skills training to live in the present moment. Why is the present moment so important? Because that is where wisdom is revealed. It's where all things true, beautiful, and amazing are experienced and is where high performance is expressed. So the present moment is the keyhole. When you live in the present moment more often, you end up naturally wanting to be more connected to the planet, to others. And so through relationships, you might say partnerships, through relationships, we become. Nobody does this thing alone. Nobody. No single athlete, no single contributor, no CEO, nobody does it alone. We need each other. So you talk quite a bit about focus. Is that what you're referring to here with living in the present moment? Because we do, we spend so much time dwelling on the past or thinking about what's going to happen next. We don't spend enough time in the present moment. Yes. So our mind, I'll I'll use the analogy isn't quite right, but it holds up for simplicity, you know, right now is that our mind is like software that Mm -hmm. requires programming. And our brain is a bit like the hardware that requires, you know, that is quite sturdy. It's actually, it, it, if this falls apart in many respects. So I just sure. want to say for simplicity, I, I don't want to confuse folks there. But the idea that we can train our software, we can develop our software, that there's patches and bugs in our software is easy to understand. And so when we train our minds, we have a better capability to be present even when our brain is saying this is dangerous because our brain is trying to find danger. That's kind of one of its main dictums. It's the, you know, it's the main tenet is to scan the world to find danger. And so when the brain is like, this is dangerous, this is dangerous, fight, flight, freeze, submit, do something like, you know, don't, 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 don't stay in this too long that our mind needs to be able to say, Hey, I got you. It's good. This is where we want to be. I'm overriding. Yeah. And that requires training. And so does it align back to focus? I mean, does focus align back to vision as well? Like, okay, I'm going to apply another analogy here, a relationship. We want to take this relationship here. We're not quite here yet. Maybe, maybe the, the fight or flight syndrome means we want to disengage from the partnership the first time we see trouble, but we really need to think long-term. This is a three year, three years. We want to be here as an example. Does did the two like, are they co-pilots on the journey? Oh, they're definitely related. Yeah. You know, because the, the vision, the way you're describing vision is like a North Star. Yeah. And so there's a balance between thinking about the past and thinking about the future to your point. But the activation to get us closer to that vision being a reality is going to be exponentially realized by the time we spend in the present. Because the present moment is where all engagement takes place. Yeah. And so when I'm talking about focus, 
I'm actually talking about getting a deep focus so that you can enter into a state of flow, call it the zone. Musicians call it being in the pocket. So deep focus is one of the keyholes into the most optimal state we can be in. If you increase the skills to be deeply focused and you spend more time in the present moment because of that ability, and you would by default potentially spend more time in flow state, which is the most optimal state a human can be in, that three-year runway could actually be quite shorter. Mm. And so if you had group flow, where many people are harmonizing together, to to use a flowerly language, then we see performance go through the roof. We see connection and bonding be magnified. We see purpose and meaning enhanced as well. So group flow is actually quite special. And that requires, though, individuals to understand how to work with their mind to be in flow state more often. And again, I want to be clear. You and I are talking at a graduate degree level right now about stuff. Mm -hmm. This is not what it looks like or feels like when we're working with people that are wanting to train. We have a quite simple playbook, you know, that we work from that, that organically and simply walks through a set of best practices to help you live the best version of you. And that playbook, Microsoft helped us digitize it and put it at scale and, you know, an online course. And then subsequently, so we've built one that's available for other organizations as well. Vince, have you seen that one? Have you seen the second one that we did? So I was going to bring this up and I'm glad you mentioned it because I do want to make this available or at least let our listeners and viewers understand this. Great. I just signed up for the new one. I want to comp that for you. Very cool. And because I I value your feedback. Thank you. And then we just moved, we went from a platform we built and then we're sunsetting that because it's not the direction we're going to go in our business. And so we're switching platforms right now. So I would love some feedback from you. Love to. If you wouldn't mind uh, doing that. And then I'd also love for your community to create a fun competition to give one out. I love it. And, you know, like if, if they tag you on social, tag me on social, mine's at Michael Gervais. And then, and then tell us why that they would want to train their mind right now, why it matters, you know, to invest in their psychology. And let's pick one and give it out. It's a $500 course. It is between four to eight weeks, depending on kind of which track you choose, uh, whether speed or, or more something with more time to metabolize. I'd love to have a fun competition with your community. Let's see what they're made of. I love it. Let's see what they're made of. And you're at Michael Gervais and I'm at Vince Menzione and we'll just, we'll put this out there in the, in the world and it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun and, and a lot of benefit to our world. We talked about trust. We talked about focus. We've covered a lot of ground today. Before I shift gears, I just want to say thank you. You know, I enjoy your work. Finding Mastery, findingmastery.net, I believe, is your website. And it's it's an amazing podcast, 300 episodes. Like I said, the last two episodes were just amazing. I can't wait for the next ones. You know, you have some other amazing guests coming. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And I just want to shift gears here about you a little bit, right? So, you know, we talk about the work that you do, this high performance work, but what's a typical day in your life? How do you exemplify or maybe deal with stress as a high performance coach? What does that look like? I have, you're going to love this because they're your sponsor. I have athletic greens right here. So I'm hydrating. (laughs) I I, I alternate between my caffeine. I still, you know, I still have caffeine, even though it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I know it's my last cup, but tell us more about you and your wellness and health 
strategy, I guess is what I, what yeah, I refer to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I am an, by trade, I'm a sport performance psychologist. I'm an entrepreneur. You know, we've got a small team that we're trying to do some really fun stuff. And so Mondays are a day for internal check-in, you know, for, with the team. So there's a set of practices and processes that we have internally, but for, and so I've got different themes throughout the week uh, for each day. Cool. When I wake up, so this is just on the wellness. I work, Vince, to get sleep right. I know the science and the value. So I organize my day around trying to figure out how to maximize my sleep. Nice. It sounds wild, right? And so why is that? Because I want to live with great zest and vibrance. And if I don't get the right sleep, by the way, I could take the word I and replace with all humans. <laughs> don't get the right sleep. Vibrance, there's a cost to it. Yeah. So I want to live with great zest and vibrance and authenticity. And I want to do the, the deep, hard, drop your hips work, you know, like to square up with the hard problems of life. Okay. Now, so sleep, I, I compete in my schedule and my day to get my sleep right. Then when I wake up in the morning, it's a connection with my family. And so that's kind of the first thing that takes place. Music comes on more days than not. And so morning wake up is about 6.45 6.45 in the morning for us. Music is on throughout the house. We're getting a vibe set. Now, before I connect with family and connect with music is that I've got a, a morning mindset practice, which is four things that I do in bed. I do a little bit of breath work. I do some gratitude work. I do a quick little check-in using my imagination to see and feel how I want to be today. And then when I get out of bed, I just take a moment to be where my body is. This all takes between 60 seconds to six minutes if I'm really feeling, you know, like I'm doing some work. So I check in with myself, check in with my loved ones, create the environment with some music. Well, I'm going to stop you here because I'd love to hear what that playlist sounds like. Is there, is there a specific music that you listen to in the morning? What is it, what is it like? So that early playlist was designed by my son. Ah, and so, I, yeah, can my you son, share it with us? Can you share it? With yeah, yeah. All right, I, cool. you know, I can I can flip through it's you know on a on a yeah. player account and I'd I can it. share some of those songs and, and and give them to you. Great. If it was me, it'd probably be a little bit of like some Bill Withers, be a little bit older school there. But anyways, it's fun, upbeat, Pharrell type music. Yeah. You know, it's it's fun. And so, Athletic Greens for me with some MCT oil, a couple splashes of lemon for some antioxidants, mm. and then a walk and or some fitness. I'll do some intermittent fasting. So food comes about 11 for me. And then my last meal of around seven, you know, my last bite yeah. around 7 uh, p.m. And so I found that, that that all the research around longevity, that's it's a really important, interesting marker. So it's fitness and meetings. Those are the basics. Yeah. And I've got a set of vitamins and kind of practices that around that, that, that are part of the daily routine as well. Very cool. Very cool. So I really appreciate you sharing this. And you, you mentioned the exercise. I just want to dive in a little bit. Is there anything specific you do there? Yeah. So, I mean, I value some precision because I've been around sport a bunch. So I work with a coach that helps me, you know, specifically design a program so I can notice gains. And the gains I'm looking for in my life are increased flexibility, mobility, and yeah. strength. Yeah, And so I'm not looking for speed and quickness anymore. You know, I'm not looking to put on muscle mass, <laughs> but I do. I, flexibility, mobility really is the more important word. And then strength. And so 
For me, it's a combination of some light cardio work. I'll go in between some HIIT type training, but also some good old just basic strength training, mobility work, and there's uh, one or two days of yoga thrown in. I love it. I love it. I need to do more yoga as well. I, I've gotten away from yoga and it's so great from a flexibility and function perspective. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. Yeah. And there's a good science that sits around mobility practices. And so yoga is really good for a lot of reasons. There is some more specific things that good coaches, you know, physical training coaches would be able to share with you. And then I, I just want to wave my arms, like to remind people to lift weights to do something with resistance where you send signals to your brain, even no matter how old you are, appropriately so, you'll find the right balance when you work with a good coach because it sends signals to the brain like, oh, that's right, we need to be strong. That's right. And that brain chemistry, you know, is so primal and so important. So, Well, and muscle mass, we lose muscle mass every... We and bone density, bone and, density. And, 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 yeah. So those are some of the practices. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you again, my friend. So good to see you. So good to be with you today. I want to thank you so much for your generosity of your time and your talent. Vince, let's, I feel it. I want to say thank you. I'm honored to be here with you today. And then I want to feel the competitive, fun nature with your, your community. And when I say competition, uh, be very clear. It's like, let's have fun. Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful rest of your day and looking forward to sharing this with our wonderful listeners. So thank All you. All the best, so my friend. Thank you so much. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by PartnerTap, the partner ecosystem platform most trusted by enterprise. Drive more revenue with your partners and learn more at PartnerTap.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.